we're going to read our word for today. Um, it is Luke 19 and 28. For those of you, 28 through 40, who want to pull out your Bibles or who have signaling are going to pull out your form of Inus iPhones. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, even if they keep quiet, the stones, the stones will cry out. Thank you, Lord. time for the band. So grateful for them. <clears throat> uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be with you guys on this uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, if you're new here and this is your first time, uh, we always are so honored that people would come to Renaissance and risk it to come and worship with us. So we're really grateful for you guys here today. Uh, I went to a really cool high school, and we had some people that did some really cool things. Uh, we had one woman who won an Olympic gold medal in swimming. We had another guy who was uh, the number three chess player in the entire world. And not to brag, but we had me. And um, <laughs> I had remembered and, uh, and completely gotten down packed uh, every single episode of Martin. Uh, it's a pretty big <laughs> accomplishment. Yes, it's one worth clapping, actually, but I'm not going to tell you uh, what to do. Uh, the chess player's name was Justin Sarkar, and uh, he would travel all over the world in these chess tournaments. Now, an average chess player can think about one to two moves ahead. So you'll make a move, and you'll be thinking about one or two moves ahead. But a chess master can think 15 to 20 moves ahead. These guys and girls are amazing. Now, Justin was traveling the world uh, at a chess tournament, and he got back from the hallway, and there was a lot of buzz in the hallway, like, yo, Justin was, like, in Russia playing, like, all of these chess masters, and I stopped him in the hallway. I said, Justin, congratulations. I heard that you're, like, number three in the world. He says, thank you. And I said, hey, do you know who number one is? He says, yeah, he named this guy. I was like, no, 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 I'm number one. <laughs> he says, you're not number one. The number one guy is, like, he's, he's from Norwegia, wherever he's from, and... Um, <laughs> I just made up a country. Is that even a country? That's not. Close enough. Close enough. Close enough. 
I said, Justin, you're disrespecting me, man. Like, you're lucky there's no chessboard, because if there was, I'd show you that I was number one. He smiled and said, you're in luck. I carry a chessboard with me everywhere I go. <laughs> now, we were walking to the cafeteria, and I'm like, yo, I just challenged a chess master to a game of chess. And I was like, well, I had done like, the little desktop version of chess, uh, like level one out of like a thousand levels. Uh, and I knew how to play chess, uh, but I certainly wasn't a master or a grandmaster. Uh, so I decided that as I was walking to the cafeteria, that I have to do the craziest boldest moves that have ever been done. If I start with the tr traditional predictable pattern, he's going to wipe the floor with me. So I'm going to do something that he has never seen before. So we sat down and I started the game. I moved my pawn. And real quickly, for those of you who aren't as good as chess as I am, um, uh, pawns are pretty disposable. Uh, you get eight of them uh, and you lose a bunch of pawns in the course of the game. And that's okay because pawns, they're good, they're useful, but they're not and they're not terribly valuable. They have use, they have purpose, uh, but they're not something that you absolutely need. So you use your pawn to advance in the game, all with one goal in mind, to capture the king. That's what you do. You, you make every single decision thinking about how you're going to eliminate every single barrier to get to the king, while at the same time protecting your king at all costs. You lose a pawn, no big deal. You lose, a, you lose your king, it's game over. So while I'm sitting down, I'm like, yo, he's about to get Jordan 3.0. I'm about to go Matrix on this dude. And I moved my pawn, and then as soon as I was able to, I started moving my king all over the board. <laughs> it was like one pawn and my king just dancing around. And you guys will never believe what happened. I lost, like in three moves. <laughs> I lost pretty quickly. It was an embarrassing defeat. Um, all my friends laughed at me because they said I was an idiot for challenging a chess master to a game of chess, and they were very right about that. But hey, I learned a lesson that day in life and in chess. In life and in chess, you never want to treat a king like you treat a pawn. Certainly in chess, you, you never want to treat your king like you would a pawn. You want to protect it at all costs. You want to strategize around it. Every thought that you have in the game has to center around what impact does this have about my king. But pawns, you can lose one, you can lose two, you can lose eight, and it doesn't really matter. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus comes into town in this uh, series that we're talking about in Luke 19 from Encountering Jesus, uh, when Jesus comes to town, he comes in as a king. He makes a pretty bold statement that he is not a pawn that you can take or leave. He's not going to be a pawn that you can use him to advance uh, another purpose. Jesus is coming in and he's challenging people and saying, if you're going to be in relationship with me, you need to know that I'm a king. I'm not one of these things that you can take or leave. I'm not something that's disposable. I'm not discardable. I am a king. Now, Jesus' statement was so bold uh, because of the way that he came in to town. And let me set the scene a little bit. Uh, he was coming in on uh, what we call in Christian circles, Palm Sunday, uh, also known as the triumphal entry. And uh, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel, like the most important city. He's like coming into New York City, uh, and he's riding in on a donkey. And as he's riding in, it's like um, coming to America when King Jaffe Jofer, they're throwing the roses at his feet. <laughs> right? Uh, when Jesus is coming in, they're laying their cloaks down on the ground for him because this is royalty. 
This is royalty, and they're gonna, he's so royal, they don't even want his donkey's feet touching the ground. And they're waving palms, and they're uh, praising Jesus, saying all these uh, amazing things uh, about him. Now, it's pretty interesting um, uh, why uh, he came in, and also the way he came in. Uh, a lot of theologians and biblical commentaries uh, talk about Jesus coming in on a donkey was an even stronger statement of him saying that I'm the king. So anybody could ride into town and make the statement that they're the king, but normally people would ride in on a big war horse with its chest all poked out, uh, kicking people on the side and just moving everything out, uh, out of the way. But for Jesus to ride in on a donkey, uh, the only person who would do that is the undisputed king of a region. Like, everybody knows I'm the king. I'm so good here that my name is good in, in these streets. Uh, nobody, has to, nobody would even question who the man is. And for Jesus to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, he's saying, I am the undisputed king of Israel. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, Jesus was not from uh, Jerusalem. He was from Nazareth. Jesus was from the suburbs. Jesus was from Staten Island. And he's coming in <laughs> to Midtown saying... I'm the king of this. And you can see how offensive that is for a lot of reasons. But what Jesus was doing was pushing the hand of everybody. And he was saying, today we're going to make a decision. Today we're going to decide, am I a pawn or am I a king? But I'm not going to let you put me in some little middle category. And he's making a declaration that he is, in fact, uh, the king. And that certainly got a reaction from a lot of people. And here's why this is so important, not just a history lesson about the, the nation of Israel, um, but you and I all have our own preferred methods, our own ways that we, you and I would treat Jesus like a pawn, that Jesus would be a disposable but useful thing in your life that you would use to navigate around, and hopefully you're hoping to navigate to get some goal, whatever your goal is. Or uh, is Jesus a king in our lives? Is Jesus the one that we center everything else around? Is Jesus the one thing that is so vital that as long as we have him, then we're good? Uh, the two groups of people in this text, uh, the first group were the Jews. Uh, and now, in this scene, in this time, the Jews had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for a Messiah. So here's what's going on. Uh, the Jews were under Roman rule. So basically, it would be like if America had been taken over by Canada, Right? And you cannot trust Canadians. They are a wily group of people. <laughs> and we had to pay taxes to Canada. And we had to uh, had uh, Canadian inscriptions on our money. And everything that we had to do went towards Canada. There would be a lot of people who would resent Canadian rule in American sovereign land. Now, this is what's basically going on. The Roman Empire, if you are a history person at all, you know how much they controlled and how much they dominated. They controlled almost all the uh, civilized world, and they certainly had a stronghold in Jerusalem. And here's what the people were wanting Jesus to be. When these people uh, saw Jesus and they were screaming, uh, when he came near down the path of the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. When they were saying this, uh, they weren't praising Jesus for any other reason other than hoping that Jesus was going to be this long-awaited Messiah that was going to free them for, from Roman rule. 
And they were hoping, and they were laying down their cloaks on the ground. They were waving their palms in the air. They were excited and hoping and, and praising Jesus because Jesus was going to advance their goal, and their goal was a good one. Now, it's a really interesting fact that this same crowd of people that were waving their palms and saying, Hosanna, blessed is the Lord in the highest, and giving God all of this praise, that this same crowd five days later were screaming, crucify him. Once Jesus was no longer useful to them, he was discardable. Once Jesus was no longer advancing their purpose, their goal, once Jesus started talking about, hey, my kingdom is not of this world, uh, um, I, have, I have come to seek and save the lost. Once Jesus starts talking in spiritual language that his kingdom is not of this world and that he's not going to be the ruler, the authoritative ruler to overcome the kingdom in the way they want him to do it, he was discardable. Now, here's my fear for you and here's my fear for me, that you and I would have all of the outside appearance of someone who's praising Jesus. He's good. Oh, man, God is so good. But deep down inside, inwardly, we're treating Jesus like a pawn. We're hoping that Jesus will advance our purpose, whatever our purpose is, even if it's a good one. And we're not treating Jesus like a king that says, hey, wherever, we, wherever you take me, I'm going to follow. Now, this is certainly something that happens and has happened in my life. Uh, I've told the story at length, so I won't give you the long version. I'll give you the, the elevator uh, version of it. Uh, my wife and I are both widowed. She lost her husband in a motorcycle accident. I lost my late wife in, uh, to cancer. Um, and while my late wife was battling cancer, uh, I had the best prayer life in the world. I would never go a day without praying. It's rare that I went a couple hours without praying. And prayer was just something I did so much. I prayed so much, much of which was for the healing of my late wife. And so many people rallied around us and prayed. And after, um, she, after she passed away, after she died, I stopped praying. Now, here's what I realized later. Some of it was just grief, and grief is good, and it's natural, uh, and that's something that uh, is, is a good thing for us to go through. I, I kind of just dropped everything. Uh, but a huge piece of it was this. Jesus was no longer useful to me because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. And I had realized uh, that a lot of my prayer life, listen, a lot of my prayer life was centered around God being useful to do what I wanted him to do. It was a really good thing that I wanted God to do. It was an amazing thing I wanted God to do, and he didn't do it, and I didn't even know what to do after that. It wasn't that I decided, God, I'm not going to pray because I hate you. I just didn't even have a worldview or a framework that prayer would even fit into. God, if you're not doing what I want you to do, then why should I even pray? It doesn't even work. It's worthless. Now, we've asked these questions before, and it's, it's one that packs a lot of weight, and I just want you to think about it. What if God doesn't do what you want God to do for you in your life? Think about your most earnest, desperate prayer, a good prayer, a really good thing that you want, um, something that's amazing that you want God to do, not something that's random or anything like that. But what if God doesn't do that for your life? Is he going to be discardable, that you can just discard him as no longer useful? Um, can we say that the goal of our prayer lives is to get God? Uh, can we say that the goal of our prayer lives is to get God? And, and certainly so many times in my life, uh, I, I would not answer that question with a yes. Uh, I have other things that I want Jesus to do for me, and when he's not doing it, we're just going to let him be discarded. Now, it's interesting that Jesus comes uh, as a king because um, Jesus tells us, hey, definitely, God gives us a, a scripture all throughout that tells us to pray for certain things, to pray for healing, to pray for God to bless you for resources, for a husband or a wife. God tells us this is all great things to pray for, amazing things to pray for. 
But I don't want your framework of the way you understand God or the way you approach God to be so limited that if God doesn't do that thing for you, that he's no longer useful in your life. Now, uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say how easy it is for me uh, or for you to treat Jesus like a pawn. Uh, We can want good things uh, in our lives, and we have to be careful that we're not treating Jesus uh, like a pawn. Now, there's other ways that we can treat Jesus like a pawn as well, and we see that in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire uh, was the most explosive, expansive empire. There have been thousands of books written about them. Um, and the main actors in this scenario uh, were people like a guy named Pontius Pilate and a bunch of Roman officials. Um, and we see this with them, that they all had to swear their allegiance to Caesar. And if they dared acknowledge any other king, it was going to be a lot of pain to pay. Now, the, the ruler, Caesar Augustus, brought in with him what's called Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And for about 200 years, there was no uh, wide-scale conflict in in the world. He had shut it down that much. Uh, He uh, didn't do this through good negotiation tactics. He did it through hard rule. He came, and if he had an enemy, he crushed them completely, so much so that they were defenseless to ever fight against him again. And the rulers knew this. They knew this about him, that this dude ain't no game. This dude is not a joke. If you come against him, he is going to annihilate you. He is going to destroy you and your entire family. Everybody uh, was on the table. Now, when the Roman rulers uh, saw Jesus coming in, they didn't want Jesus to challenge the already set in stone way of life that they had going. And here's how you and I can treat Jesus like a pawn. We don't want Jesus to challenge the already set in stone way that we are living. Jesus, yes, I'll I'll be flexible with this stuff on the table, but I'm not even putting this stuff on the table. In a lot of ways, we're treating Jesus like a pawn and and not a king because there's a lot of things that we don't even consider uh, what we would do uh, even if Jesus, even if it was clear, even if it was a burning bush, even if Jesus, I messaged you and and told you to do something, there's some things that you and I hold off of the table, um, and it may be a relationship. Maybe your finances. And listen, if this is the way you're approaching Jesus, you're going to be sorely disappointed at some point in your life because you uh, have a version of Jesus that's never going to challenge you. And we've been saying this week after week and week. If you have a version of Jesus that coincidentally uh, likes everything you like and doesn't like everything you don't like and never challenges you, never pushes you, then you are not worshiping Jesus as a king. You're worshiping Jesus as a pawn instead. We see this right here in the scripture. What Uh, how Jesus treats people who follow him, and he uh, constantly and repeatedly puts them in interesting situations. Uh, Now, here's something that's true about me and you. Uh, We all love the feelings of feeling in control in our lives. Nobody likes to feel like they're out of control. Uh, We all prefer certainty over uncertainty. No one in here likes to guess how you're going to pay your rent. Nobody in here feels good when there's a, a big question mark over your life. We like to feel like we're in control. No one in here likes to, f- we prefer uh, independence over dependence. Nobody wants to be dependent on God or anybody else to do anything for us. It's a bad feeling, which is why people like me, for example, I can give help to anybody, but it's really hard for me to ask for help. It's really hard for me to ask for help because I prefer being independent. And we all prefer being powerful over being vulnerable. None of us like being in situations where we feel uh, like we're vulnerable, like we don't have power in, in our lives. Now, to follow Jesus means that he will put you in uncertain, vulnerable, dependent positions all the time. 
And if Jesus is truly king, if you're worshiping Jesus the king, and if you are in a real relationship with Jesus the king, then uncertainty, vulnerability, and dependence will be your entire life. We see this here in the scripture in verse 30 and 31. Uh, Jesus gives his disciples uh, an instruction. He says, um, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying this? Say, the Lord needs it. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, listen, you, go to the Bronx and tell Poppy you need his donkey. <laughs> and you're like, yo, I don't even, like, does Poppy know you? Does, are y'all cool? Like, am I good to just go there and just take his joint? And he's not going to do anything to me for doing that? Jesus says, yes, hop on the D train. It's going to be awkward on your way back, but still... <laughs> I need you to go and I need you to go and do this. Now, the instructions that Jesus gives to people are not full of certainty. He does not give them a play-by-play roadmap. He says, yo, you go and do this. It is not full of, um, uh, it's fully dependent on what Jesus is saying. They don't have any other markers that would say why we should trust this other than the fact that Jesus said to do this. There's no other reason why they should trust it other than Jesus said do it, so I guess we're going to do it. They're vulnerable, they're dependent, and they're in uncertain waters. Listen, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if your version of Jesus, if the Jesus you're following doesn't put you in vulnerable, uh, dependent situations, then maybe uh, you and I are following the Jesus of our imagination. Now, the easiest way this works like in my life is usually with money. Um, we've announced that April 23rd, we're starting an offering a campaign uh, to bless this neighborhood. The first organization we're blessing is right here in the school, PS76. Uh, we want to see their kindergarten program thriving, and we want to be a small part of that. Uh, we want to bless this school. We want to bless this neighborhood. And I get super excited when I think about uh, how amazing it would be with our kids here at this school doing coding and doing all these robots and all whatever the stuff they're going to be doing. And that's, that's exciting. We've announced also a couple weeks ago that we're partnering with Hope for New York, and we want to take up offerings for uh, organizations like Young Lives, for example. Uh, And how amazing would it be to see a teen mom go to camp and be around her friends and to find Jesus, find the love of God, and and build a real good community? How amazing would that be? And we've also talked about um, uh, uh, Kenny. Last last week, my boy Kenny uh, came and and killed it on stage. Uh, They are launching the Gathering Church in Harlem in September, uh, and how amazing would it be for more good churches like Renaissance and the Gathering uh, to be thriving throughout Har- Harlem and for us to be a part of blessing a church planter, get off the ground. Now, all of these are amazing things, and I was really excited until my wife said, how much are we going to give? And I was like, okay. I said, baby, I just talk about this. I don't do any of this stuff. <laughs> you want me to give? Hey, and immediately I started to feel a little vulnerable, like, hey, what's this going to do to our cushion? Like, what is this going to do to our plans for, uh, you know, whatever we had coming up in the summer? And immediately I started to feel a little uncertain and a little vulnerable and a little dependent, like, man, if this happens, I'm really going to need God to come through in this way and this way and this way. Uh, And as I was sitting down thinking about it, I said, Jordan, maybe the king is in. Maybe the king is the one that's in my heart right now. Maybe Jesus is here and he's rearranging some stuff because this is the way Jesus operates. Now, here's, uh, I was talking to Lester this week, and he said some amazing things um, about generosity. He said, the world kind of gives us two categories in which we give money. uh, The first one is um, where you spend money minimally. 
where you don't buy anything, you live off of oodles and noodles, and you don't even like it. You don't even put salt on it. You don't even want to like it. You just are miserable. Uh, you don't want to enjoy anything, and um, you live a minimal lifestyle. And everybody can see how minimally you live. Your sneakers are beat up, and you are just living uh, minimally. You think this is going to bless God. And the other side of it is extravagantly, right, where you don't have no limits on how you spend, right? Throw it in the bag. Whatever. If you like it, get it, right? Uh, and you live extravagantly. And the Bible calls us to not live minimally or extravagantly, rather generously. What are you doing with the resources that you do have? Not that, not that you can't enjoy anything. Listen, get that steak. Why not? But the Bible calls us to live generously, and I don't think I have to make too much of a case uh, to see how, uh, how much Jesus and, and the early church and everybody followed this lifestyle of generosity. And there's so many people here at Renaissance that are extremely generous, and I'm, I'm just honored to even be a part of, of all the things that we're doing. But it still doesn't feel good at first. It still feels like a challenge to live generously. Where am I going to uh, get uh, enough cushion to make sure that I'm okay? And listen, if this is what's stirring around in your heart, then maybe it's because Jesus the King is challenging you to be generous. Jesus the King is challenging you to be generous, and it may put you in a vulnerable position, but it's not Jesus the pawn, it's Jesus the King. Now, another way that this plays out is uh, uh, for us treating Jesus like a a pawn and not a king uh, might be seen this week. So we've been talking about Easter, and Aswan gave a story about how many people would come to church if you simply invited them. And there's so many people that are far from God, but they're close to you. They are close to you, and they would come if you invited them. And you might be at work with the bubble guts thinking about what they would say if they found out that you're a Christian or if you invited them to church. And it might feel very, very uncertain. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to say behind my back? Are they going to still invite me out to happy hour? What are they gonna, how are they going to treat me if people find out that I'm a Christian? Or maybe you're brand new to church too, and you're like, yo, I don't even know what I believe. Like, why would I invite somebody else uh, to church? And it feels uncertain, and it feels like you're a little dependent on God. Listen, this is the absolute best place to be because this is a place where Jesus is king, not a pawn in your life that advances your reputation, that advances your social status, but rather uh, a lifestyle where we acknowledge and reverence Jesus as king and say, Jesus, I don't know how this is going to shake out, but if you're calling me to, to, to share the good news with somebody, uh, if you're calling me to, to live my faith a little bit more boldly, then I'm going to do it, and I'll let you deal with the results. It's incredibly easy to treat Jesus uh, like a pawn and not a king. Now, none of this stuff is, is easy. Uh, I definitely don't want to pretend like anything that we're talking about is easy. Uh, certainly, I've, I've mentioned this a number of times. When I say the Lord's Prayer, by far the hardest line is, your will be done. I hate that line. I don't like to say it at all. I say that line fast like, your kingdom come, you will be done. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't really mean it, so it doesn't really count when I say it. And I think, um, I think I'm fearful when I say that because I think of king as this dominating type of king like Caesar that's going to rule my life with an iron fist. If I get out of line, he's going to crush me. He's going to put me in the most ridiculous situations, and he's not even going to be there with me. Uh, I have a friend that found out I was a pastor, and I invited him to church, and he says, nah, I'm not going to come. And I was like, okay, you know, people have a lot of reasons why they don't come to church. I said, you know, why is it? He says, yeah, uh, if I go to church, then I'm going to end up like in a third world country somewhere as a missionary. And I'm like, dude, we're in Harlem, bro. Like, chill out. We're not sending you to Bangladesh. Relax, man. Um, 
But his idea of Jesus, the king, was that Jesus has arbitrary, random, meaningless assignments to send you on. These just random things that he just sends you out on. He's not really good. He's not going to be with you. He's not going to give you any real burden for anything. He's just going to kick you out the door and make you do a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want to do. And I think a lot of us, when we think of Jesus as a king, think of Jesus like that, that he's going to dominate my life and he doesn't care about me. He's going to just put me in vulnerable situations for no reason whatsoever. Uh, and this scripture gives us hope on what type of king Jesus really is. Uh, Jesus is not like human kings. Jesus wins his kingship through suffering service, not coercive power. Jesus wins his kingship through suffering service, not coercive power, not dominating people like the way other kings did it. And we see this, the description here in the scripture and in other gospels. As a matter of fact, Matthew uh, gives the same account, but gives us a couple more details. It says like this in Matthew 21. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a coat, the foal of a donkey. Now, Matthew uses some language to describe Jesus that is absolutely incredible. Uh, they're quoting the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and he says, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And he lets us know what type of king Jesus is. And the first type of king that Jesus is, that I don't want you leaving without this, is Jesus is the king that comes to you. Jesus is the type of king that comes to you. Now, for thousands of years, men and women have been building bridges to connect two things that have been previously separated. The oldest bridge is in Greece about 3,000 uh, years ago. They made it. But well before people had any of the skills, the technological skills to build actual bridges, uh, men and women have been building religious, religious bridges to connect them from God to God. They've realized that there's a separation between them and there's God and then God. And I think if you and I are being honest with ourselves, uh, you don't have to look too far back into your own life, to your day, to your week, to realize how easily it is for you to do certain things. It is incredibly easy for me to be selfish and self-centered. And ask my wife outside, and she'll tell you uh, how easy it is for me to do that. It is incredibly easy for me just to focus on myself. It is incredibly easy for me to want to protect me at all costs, and who cares about anybody else? It's incredibly easy for me to be unforgiving for me to want people who've done me wrong to not do well in their lives. It's very easy for me to do that. And I, I notice the separation inside of myself between me and God. There's God in his perfect love, and then there's me that's all the way over here. Now, for generations and centuries and millennia, men and women have been building these religious bridges to connect them and God. Dance like this, wear this type of hat, pray like this, go to this type of church on this day at this time, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this incantation, say this like this, repeat after me, uh, grow the sides of your heads out, and all of these different rules and rules and rules and rules, hoping to cross the bridge. Jesus is the only person in history that says, listen, the bridge, doesn't start on, the bridge building doesn't start on your side. The bridge building absolutely does not start on your side. It starts on my side. In John 1, uh, we get... Uh, a scripture that talks about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't even receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Listen, if you're thinking that you have to do 97 things in order to get to God's side, you're going to have an incredibly frustrating spiritual life. Because every single day, you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and say, have I done a good enough job building this bridge? And the answer is going to be no. We've asked this question before. I'll, answer it, I'll ask it again. Has there ever been a day in your life where you could not have done better? One day in your life where you could not have done better? The answer is no. We could have always done better. And this is why it is so important that we understand the gospel message. What is the gospel message that we talk about? It's not a genre of music. It is undeserving people get unconditional love from an unobligated giver. Undeserving people, people that don't deserve it, get this unconditional love from an unobligated giver, meaning Jesus Christ himself crosses the bridge to people that don't deserve it. And as it says in John 1, some of them didn't even receive him. His own didn't even receive him. This is how intentional Jesus is in your walk. God wants you to know him. God wants you to have a relationship with him. God is discoverable. God wants us to know him. And if you and I start the relationship that we have with God in our minds any other way than that God is a type of king that comes to us in pursuit of you and me, no man can, uh, can claim that you and I uh, have found God on our own. It is God that first has put the urge inside of us to even come to him. Jesus talks about this in John. He says, Father, those that you have sent to me, I have not lost one. It is God that does the drawing. It is God that does the saving. It is all starting with God. If you start it with yourself, you're going to have an incredibly frustrating spiritual life. Jesus is the type of king that comes to us. Not only that, even better news, he's gentle. Jesus is a gentle king. Uh, it says it in the scripture. Um, he tells us uh, in, in verse 2 in Matthew 21, it says, go, ahead, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there which has never uh, been written. And in the quote from Zechariah, Jesus tells us, uh, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, it's really important that Jesus rode uh, an animal that had never been ridden. And for those of you uh, who don't have a ton of experience with uh, animals that are, are ridden, horses and all of that, uh, it is very difficult to just hop on the back of a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden because what's the first thing they do? They'll kick, they'll throw you all over the place. To this day, I won't ride no horses because I had a pretty negative experience. Uh, my cousin uh, was riding a horse in Virginia, and, um, you know, the, the, the trainer was like, hey, I'm just going to take it around the house a couple times, do some nice gentle laps. As soon as he got on, that horse took off like sea biscuit. That joint was like, <laughs> she was flying. And his the terror in his face, like, hold on. Uh, he was holding on for, for dear life, and that horse was, was pretty wild. And after my cousin was done, miraculously, he lived and, uh, and got off the horse without being injured. And they're like, who's next? And I was like, not me. <laughs> you ain't about to have me caught up out here. Now, Jesus hops on the back of a horse, uh, a donkey that's never been ridden. And instead of the donkey kicking and going crazy, it's calm. In the middle of a crowd of screaming people, a donkey that's never been ridden is calm. And what does that tell us about the, the touch of Jesus? That is gentle. Jesus doesn't break us. He heals us. Jesus does not break you. He will heal you. In one of the most famous scriptures of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
My brothers and my sisters, these are not the words of someone who intends to be unnecessarily harsh to you. And if you're looking at and evaluating what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm absolutely not saying that. But it's never meaningless. And it's never alone. And for Jesus to be king in your life, for Jesus, for you to center everything in your life around Jesus, it doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, but it does mean it's going to be worth it and Jesus is going to be gentle with you. It's never going to be sending you out into a situation where you're just being fed to the wolves for no reason. Jesus is gentle. He's humble in heart. Now, one of the things we see um, last in the scripture is that Jesus is not just the king who is uh, uh, gentle and he comes to us, but he uses unconventional methods to accomplish his will. Now, Jesus uses unconventional methods to accomplish his will, and this is really important for you to know because if you are following Jesus, hoping to have a perfect understanding of his will and his activity in your life, you may end up pretty frustrated, uh, like did a lot of Jesus' earliest followers, a lot of his earliest disciples. When Jesus said that he was going to the cross, uh, one of his disciples rebuked him like, nah, never, never that. And Jesus was like, uh, get behind me, Satan. You only have the things of this world on your mind. Listen, Jesus' methods are not always the most conventional. Uh, there may be something that's completely outside of the realm of your thinking of what should happen, but check this out. Jesus is a king. He's not the pawn. Jesus is the king. He's not the pawn. He is not someone that doesn't know what's going on in our lives. Uh, he is not without uh, an agenda. He is not without a plan for us. Jesus is in control. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, people misunderstood the cross for weakness when it was, in fact, the strength. They misunderstood it for being meaningless when it was, in fact, the one thing that was going to connect the bridge of me and you and God. Now, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been doing something called communion, and it was a meal commemorating and remembering what Jesus had done, this unconventional method, and it was done intended to give us strength, to give us hope, to give us optimism, to give us courage to face our day and to continually give our lives to Jesus as king, not the king that rules your life in coercive power, but the king who rules our lives through selfless, sacrificial service for us. Now, Jesus did this. He, he took some bread, and he broke it, and he says, hey, this is my body, which is broken for you. And if you want to know whether or not I'm a good king that's worth following, if you want to know if I'm trustworthy of you treating me like a king that uh, can bear the entire weight of your life, then listen, I'm going to give you this as an example. My body is being broken for you. What else can I give you to show you this? And then he took some wine, and he says, and this is my blood, which is me poured out for you. And then he challenges us and charges us to do this together as a faith family, to remember the good, gentle king that came to us. And as we come today uh, to take communion, I want you to envision uh, the hands in, that are serving you as the hands of Christ uh, with holes through them. And this Jesus is inviting us to surrender our lives to him as king. And he's a good king. Now, there'll be two stations in the front. The communion service is going to come up right now, and it's also going to be a station uh, in the back. Now, if you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, you don't know where your walk is at with God, uh, please stay in your seat and feel no pressure to come and move around and take communion just because everybody else is doing it. But if you have given your life to Jesus, uh, uh, if you know where you stand with God, uh, please forward, come forward, join this next song, and receive the body and the blood of our Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, 
There's so many times in our life where uh, we're fearful to treat you like a king, and so we revert to treating, treating you like a pawn to just move you around uh, to advance our own purposes. God, as we come today to receive communion, I pray that we would uh, be filled with trust. We would be filled with boldness and optimism uh, no matter what our day ahead looks like, no matter what our week ahead, no matter what our year ahead looks like. And we would trust that you are a king, a good, gentle, humble king that comes to us, one worthy of our trust. So Jesus, at this time, would you uh, challenge our hearts? Would you comfort our hearts? Would you lead us as only you can? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.